Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the 357th show of ROI, and our noted guest is Dr. Larissa Cat Tracy, professor of medieval literature at Longwood University. Uh, who is going to talk to us about her book, Treason, Medieval and Early Modern Adultery, Betrayal, and Shame. The history buff for today's show is Brett Menard. Uh, Brett, could you give a question to our noted guest? In fact, I could. So at the end of the broadcast uh, segment, we talked a little bit about all of the legal requirements um, to force someone to do a walk of shame. Were there any recorded instances of people um, being fortunate enough to just happen to have two judges with them when they caught their <laughs> spouse? Cheating. Just happened. Just happened now, to have. <laughs> well, the, this, is, this is one of the interesting things about a law, is that the implication is that they had that it happened often enough that they had to finally codify it. Say, okay, these are the requirements. Um, there is a there there is a manuscript illumination in the Kostinagen that shows this, but it doesn't say who was necessarily ever caught at it. I think the most famous instance of this walk of shame was a woman named Jane Shore, who was the mistress of King Edward the Fourth. And when he died, and his brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, um, suddenly and miraculously just magically became King Richard III, never mind his nephews, who seemed to have disappeared through <clears throat> being murdered by their uncle. Um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. That happened? You mean that uh, happens in history? <laughs> uh, well, I was, I was gonna say, he didn't actually physically murder them himself, but he most likely had them murdered, and I probably just annoyed the entire Richard III society. But... <laughs> Um, in, uh, in that instance, when Richard has himself declared king as Richard III, he, to levy his political um, position, he accuses Jane Shore of treason against him for her adultery with his brother, who had been king. And it's a completely specious thing. It's entirely just made up as a political ploy, but she's forced to walk around the cathedral in her shift and do that public penance. She's not naked, but he makes this big political play, and the idea was to um, essentially shut her up, because she was she was one of the people agitating against Richard's sudden assumption to the throne, and she was a problem, and she had political... Um, she had political allies, and Richard wanted to neutralize them, so he did that by accusing her of adultery and witchcraft, because that's a convenient charge as well. Sure. Um, uh, Jake, can we have Rick get in charge of the Richard the Third Society? To have uh, well, him on well, our show yeah, next? we'll we'll send a send an email. Absolutely. Um, Sorry about that. <laughs> no, you can be on the line too. You can talk with us when they're talking with us. Defend your argument. Now go on. Cat, um, I'm I'm curious. The examples that you've used and and the examples that would be familiar to our audience are all female. So do we have yeah. any cases of um, uh, of adultery and and treason of a male to uh, to a female uh, rather than the other way around? And I'm going to make this slightly harder on you um, mm -hmm. because I'm going to take Elizabeth out of play. 
Oh, that was right. cold, dude. That was cold. <laughs> because Elizabeth is easy. Because she's well, <laughs> she's doing. So, do we have examples in in medieval literature of of the reverse of that non stereotype? No, we don't. And the reason for that, I mean, we we don't because in in most cases when a woman committed adultery and was either charged with adultery as treason if her husband was king, it's because the potential for the lineage and succession was threatened. And so that doesn't happen if you have a female monarch, which also didn't happen all that often when you had a female monarch who ruled in her own right, except for Elizabeth and her sister Mary and a few who were later. Um, the idea that uh, you had a, a a man who commits adultery against a, a queen, that wasn't really necessarily even considered adultery, oddly enough. And it, it didn't present the same problem with the line of succession, because if the queen got pregnant, at least you knew who the mother was. You didn't necessarily know who the father was if she was sleeping around. So that's actually why that becomes a case of treason rather than simply the fact of adultery. Um, and... The idea, I mean, there are certainly plenty of male traitors to the throne for a variety of other reasons, like William Wallace. But as I said, one man's freedom fighter is another man's traitor. But as far as adultery goes, no. There's no case where you have a female monarch whose husband committed adultery and was charged with treason. Okay. A question. Okay, back to the topic of the issue of shame. Uh, something I've been pretty good at throughout my life. Um, could, was there any written text of like the defining of that, or is just just the aftermath of all the? Because when I think of this, of course, I'm thinking of literature, American, uh, the Scarlet Letter. But um, is, is there any definition, or was this just uh, everybody took it or how they saw it and the finger pointing and and after that, or did someone come along and say, yes, this fits into that category? Well, there's a legal definition of the publica fama, or the public reputation, that comes in, again, into legal text. You start to see it in the late 12th, 13th century. And so, yeah, there's a definition of this idea of public shaming. And there are laws that dictate how much you are allowed to publicly shame people for various crimes. That's the whole point of something like a pillory or the stocks. So, for instance, if you go to Williamsburg and you see that there's a pillory, that's the one where you put your head and your hands through the wood and you stand there, that's a pillory. The stocks is when you're sitting down and it's your feet. That was meant as public humiliation. And public humiliation and the shame incumbent upon those public crimes was the entire point of the punishment, was that your friends, your neighbors got to mock you and throw rotten vegetables at you and throw things at you for two to three hours. And so that is a, a major component of a lot of laws. People think of pillories and stocks as torture, but they're not. They are a form of punishment that was specifically for things like sedition, for slander, for gossiping. There are also forms of punishment called scold bridles, and I'm sure you've seen pictures of these things. They look like metal helmets that have bizarre animal faces. Well, those had a tongue depressor. And people who were guilty of gossip or sedition or slander might be forced to wear one of them in public for a prescribed period of time for like a few hours because they were to be publicly humiliated and publicly recognized as a slanderer or somebody who, can, who was a gossiper. And so the whole point was the public shame. And that's written into the laws themselves. Okay. Brett. 
So you've talked a little bit about this with um, talking about the pillory and the scolds bridal. What other ways was shame used with the lower classes as a form of social control? Um, again, the idea of being branded. In some cases, you might have crimes where the punishment was mutilation, having somebody's ears split um, if they were a thief, having a hand cut off that if they were a thief. That's A lot of it's for thieving or for forgery. Eventually, forgery and counterfeiting actually becomes an act of actual high crime of treason because you are counterfeiting the image of the king on coinage. But that's, again, 14th, 15th. 16th century. By the time you get to the 16th century, there's a much longer list of offenses that counted as treason. In fact, a lot of them are are, li- are somewhat inoffensive, but the after the Reformation, you end up with a whole bunch more things that could be considered treasonous, depending on the authorities. But all of these things were applicable to common people, and if you branded somebody, or if you split their ears, or if you cut off a hand, everybody knew why. Everybody recognized that. And that was the point, is the deterrent is the public shame that comes by having that permanent physical marker of the crime you've committed. Kat, I'm, I'm interested, since Brett brought up more common, um, how does adultery play out within the, the uh, rank-and-file population? Um, is that something that's yeah. dealt with exclusively by the church? Is it something that, that was dealt with in common law but, but not in, in, um, in major law? I, I'm using a real old medieval moot law. Um, how does <laughs> adultery play out? Um, adultery is not actually technically a crime for most people. It's a crime, like I said, later in the 16th century where you can have a woman who commits adultery, or in one case, one of the articles in my book talks about this, where a woman kills her husband, and that's considered treason because a wife acted against her husband. But for the most part, adultery was a sin. Adultery was dealt with as a sin, and you'd have to prove it first, and that was kind of difficult to do unless you could catch somebody at it. And so it was not it was not a legal regulation for a lot of the Middle Ages. And again, it was something that a lot of people did, And yes, the church said no, and yes, the church said that's a commandment, don't break it. But if you went to confession and you confessed it, that was pretty much it. So it really only becomes a legal issue when you get to the upper ranks of society where they're concerned about questions of lineage and inheritance. And it really only becomes a high crime when you're talking about the queen. Um, it does become a crime to act against your husband in that way, but it's more if you kill him rather than if you just cheat on him. Um, so one last follow-up then. Was adultery a, a grounds for divorce for the average person? Did that actually happen, or was it not considered to be that kind of a crime uh, in church well, roles? Con- well, considering that under Catholicism, you couldn't divorce to begin with, Right. That, that's what I'm thinking of. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you, you have to petition the Pope. I'm just wondering if that would do the job. I could, if you could prove it. But again, you had to prove it. I mean, if you think about the number of marriages that were annulled by petitioning the Pope, claiming consanguinity, where people are like, oh, yeah, we didn't realize we were too closely related when we got married 10 years ago, but now we realize we are way too closely related. Could we have an annulment, please? I mean, just ask Eleanor of Aquitaine. Right. Um, <laughs> these ideas of petitioning for annulment, most common people wouldn't bother. And if they did bother, it will, adultery 
again, had to be proven. Now, in some circumstances, like in Iceland, under the Gragas, under Icelandic law, a woman could divorce her husband for all manner of things, including adultery. She could divorce her husband if he failed to satisfy her in bed. And all she had to do was say, yes, and all she had to do was say, I divorce you three times, once at the bed, once at the door, and once outside the door. And she just had to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And she got to keep her bride price and her marriage price. Now, her husband, on the other hand, only had to say it once. But, same thing, he could divorce her for adultery. That was allowed in those circumstances. In those societies that had had divorce law, yes, adultery could be a cause on either side. And, of course, post-Reformation, it becomes a primary reason for divorce as well. Okay. (laughs) We would like to thank our guest for this 357th show, Kat Tracy, Professor of Medieval Literature at Longwood University. We've been talking about treason, medieval and early modern adultery, betrayal, and shame. History buff for today's show is Brett Menard. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search to find ROI. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.